From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello, and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by the litigation and policy team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business policy and law, and today we'll be looking at the litigation and policy catalysts that we're watching in June and that we think will impact companies across a number of different sectors. My name is Elliot Stein. I'm a senior litigation analyst covering litigation in the financial sector, and I'll be your host for today, June 2nd, 2023. If you have any questions about any of the matters that we'll be talking about today, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at your convenience with questions. So we're going to be talking about uh, a handful of sectors today. First, Dwayne Wright, our senior healthcare policy analyst, will give us his postmortem on the debt ceiling drama. And he'll also talk about Medicaid renewals and what it means for health insurers. Matt Schattenhelm, who covers TMT policy and litigation, will give us his thoughts on what AI regulation might look like in the US and in Europe. And he'll also talk about an underappreciated potential legal threat to Uber and Lyft in California. After that, Holly Frome, who covers consumer and industrial policy and litigation, will give us a preview of PFAS, of a uh, PFAS contamination bellwether trial against 3M that starts on June 5th. And she'll also discuss an upcoming appeals court argument in buyer roundup litigation. After that, Jen Ree, our antitrust litigation guru, will talk about the FTC likely beginning formal review of the pfizer Seagen deal and an antitrust class action against Apple over the company's app store practices. Nathan Dean, our senior financials policy analyst, will then analyze and discuss in the anticipated proposal by financial regulators in the U.S. to restrict banker bonuses. And I'll wrap up today's episode with some discussion of President Biden's student loan cancellation plan, which I expect the Supreme Court will strike down sometime in June. All of this research is available on the Bloomberg terminal under BIGO. And just a quick word about Bloomberg Intelligence. For those who don't know, we are the investment research platform on the Bloomberg Terminal, providing in-depth research on industries, companies, and markets, and delivering key data from BI analysts in their given industries. So with that, let's get started with the content, and let's bring you in, Dwayne, to talk about the debt ceiling. Sounds like we're basically at the finish line, just waiting for President Biden to sign it. And at this point, 
And by the time people listen to this, it may already be signed. Um, you've been on top of the story for weeks, if not months now, and it sounds like it turned out basically exactly as you predicted. So maybe, you know, come in, give us your postmortem thoughts on the deal. And if there's anything in it that surprised you. And, um, and then I know you also want to talk about Medicaid renewals and how that might affect health insurers. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Elliot. Uh, very glad this is almost behind us, just waiting for the president to sign, which I assume he'll do so over the weekend. Um, overall, I'd say that Bill is largely in line with expectations. We knew going into this exercise that a clean debt ceiling bill uh, was unlikely and was merely a negotiating tactic by the administration. We knew the Republican House passed bill was unlikely given the deep cuts to discretionary spending, uh, provisions relating to uh, Medicaid work requirements and, and some other things. And we also knew at some point there'd be a partisan fight about spending for specifically tied to the annual appropriations process. Uh, so it was either, uh, when we look at the spending, it was either now as part of the debt ceiling debate or later as part of an appropriations fight. So the spending cut is probably something Democrats would have agreed to anyway. And by doing so now as part of the debt ceiling fight, they were able to blunt some of the impact on the discretionary program side, which Republicans targeted by throwing in some IRS funding that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act that probably might not have been on the table if we were going through the normal appropriations uh, route. The spending caps for two years are largely in line with previous budget battles. You recall that in 2011, after the last major debt crisis, there was a deal, or at least because Congress couldn't come up with spending cuts, there was a deal to cap spending for 10 years. But uh, Congress, the you know uh, preceding Congresses later broke those caps through two-year spending deals that ultimately blunted the impact of savings. And as much as it ties the hands of Congress and Biden for the next one and a half, uh, year and a half, it gives the next president and the next Congress ability to determine their own spending levels. So Republicans would say that's good for them because if Trump wins, then they can do what they want or Trump or another Republican. And the same goes for Democrats. I will say, though, that uh, I was surprised that the automatic uh, CRs in this bill uh, which basically says if there isn't uh, a fiscal year funding agreement by October 1st, essentially we roll over the spending levels from the preceding year. Seems like both sides didn't have the stomach to go through another budget battle so soon. And so setting a CR if the funding bills aren't passed by the beginning of the fiscal year just says we're not dealing with any budget fights for the remainder of this Congress. Now, there will obviously be fights over the cuts to the different uh, um, appropriations bills, but they'll at least figure those out or have a lot of time to figure that out. So I think generally there's relief that it's done and we can focus on other issues, but I think there's a reality that this bill doesn't change the overall fiscal dynamics for the country, because Medicare, Social Security weren't touched, 
The door is open to supplemental bills for defense and other spending that will likely drive down the overall savings from the bill, which CBO scored at one and a half trillion over 10 years. Now, in terms of some of those other policy areas that uh, we will be looking at, uh, wanted to talk about Medicaid renewals because that's a pretty big deal right now. And just a five second background, uh, the COVID funding bills from 2020 uh, pretty much uh, allowed states to pause their Medicaid eligibility processes in exchange for getting some increased federal funding for their healthcare programs. That process or that uh, moratorium ended this year. So states have started to uh, re-up their renewal process. And management commentary going into this had been very nervous, uh, given the potential for a lot of Medicaid enrollees to roll off of their health plans this year. But uh, first quarter commentary suggests that the plans are a bit more positive in terms of the outlook for the near term as redeterminations are going to be spread out over a 12-month period. So less of a headwind in 2023, slightly more of a headwind in 2024. Uh, but this was all predicated on enrollees losing, losing coverage and picking up other types of insurance like ESI, employer-sponsored insurance, or Obamacare, and also predicated on state administrative processes limiting the number of people getting kicked off uh, who would otherwise be eligible for Medicaid. And this process started in April and May uh, with about 19 states so far. And the evidence is mixed, some higher than expected terminations, some roughly in line. And as an example, there's, there's evidence from one state where 80% of the people who lost coverage were dropped due to administrative reasons, not because they're not eligible. And so why do health plans care about this? This impacts their top line. There's an expectation of who's going to remain eligible for Medicaid and who's going to shift over from Medicaid to other plans. If we see higher than expected disenrollment and lower than expected enrollment in other types of coverage, that's going to have a pretty significant impact in, in terms of the near-term outlook for these health plans. So it's too soon to say ultimately what the impact is going to be. We'll be keeping an eye on this as 22 states began the process June 1st. And I think we'll be listening for some management commentary from their second quarter, second quarter earnings to provide some clues on whether their first quarter outlook has been changed by some of the activity on the ground so far. So. We'll have a lot more to say about this as the process unfolds over the coming months. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, Elliot. Great. Thanks a lot, Dwayne. Um, all right, Matt, let's bring you in to talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, it seems like every other headline these days has to do with AI. And um, I think my favorite story from this past week was about a lawyer who used AI to write uh, a legal brief and the brief wound up con containing citations to cases that were totally <laughs> made up uh, by the AI uh, machine. Um, 
but you've been looking into what a regulatory framework might look like for AI. So, you know, come in and tell us your thoughts on that. And then also tell us about this case in California uh, involving uh, Uber and Lyft and why you think uh, there might be an underappreciated uh, risk. There. Yeah, absolutely, Elliot. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, Tamlin Basin and I took an early look at what the regulatory risk facing artificial intelligence might look like with Tamlin focusing on the EU while I looked at the United States. Um, and it, on the on the EU side, it, it's there that we expect concrete developments first. Uh, Tamlin outlines how the the AI Act in development there contemplates that that high risk systems would need to undergo a, an assessment and be registered before they're released. And he believes that that sort of the heavy handed approach that the EU's taken to tech regulation could be replicated there, but. But these obligations aren't likely to hit until late 2025, and he points out that that there, you know, it's early days still. This is still um, in uh, facing considerable negotiation, and and so and I took a look on the U.S. side. Now the Senate here held its first major hearing on AI regulation last month, and. And what stood out was really the surprising level of optimism, the bipartisan optimism for regulating AI. Um, but, but again, I, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that that optimism will translate to actual material limits in the U.S. anytime soon. Given how quickly this technology is developing and how fast moving it is, Congress itself doesn't have any chance to keep up with regulating it. The only logical approach would be to create a new federal agency um, to, to to track it and to constantly modify its regulations to to address it. But the political hurdles to do that, um, I think, are substantial. So. For the near term, I, I think it's, it should be good news for companies looking to develop this technology in the U.S. I don't really see concrete material regulation getting through the system anytime soon. And as you said, one other thing I wanted to touch on quickly uh, in terms of a, a June catalyst for investors, and particularly for investors in, in Lyft, um, this, this impacts all gig economy companies, but particularly those that are uh, have a big focus in California. It, it's a big deal, and Lyft is a company like that. Um, and I think the the market could be underappreciating what a significant risk this could be to the company. The the issue concerns how the company's drivers are classified, whether they're employees or contractors. And three years ago, in 2020, California voters passed an initiative that was a big win for Lyft. It, it said. Uh, the company's drivers are contractors, and and and, but but quietly, a case challenging that that ballot initiative has been making its way through the California court system with sort of mixed results, and we're sort of at a showdown point for that case. The date to circle on your calendar here is June 15th. Possible that's that slips to June 22nd. But that's the day that the California Supreme Court is is due to tell us whether it's going to take up this case. That court denies 95% of petitions, of, of cases it's asked to, to take. I think that the risk here is much higher. I think uh, investors should be thinking more of 40% risk that the court takes the case. 
And then that would be bad news for Lyft. That would significantly raise its risk because it won at the latest stage of the case. And so the, the fact that the, the California Supreme Court would be taking it would signal considerable risk that they might be looking to change the result and potentially strike down that voter initiative. Now, I think Lyft can actually prevail. So, you know, I want to caution not to overreact if that happens on, on June 15th or June 22nd. Uh, but it could be a, a considerable risk if the court decides to take the case. With that, let me toss it back to you, Elliot. Great. Thanks, Matt. All right, Holly, let's bring you in to talk mass tort litigation. First, in 3M PFAS litigation, it sounds like we're reaching a, a critical milestone with a bellwether jury trial starting June 5th. Um, and you've written that you think 3M is a heavy underdog in that. And then you're also going to be watching uh, an appeals court oral argument in buyer roundup uh, litigation. So maybe come in, tell us about both those cases and what you're going to be watching for. Yep. Uh, thanks, Elliot. So 3M faces the first test trial in thousands of cases alleging PFAS contamination from firefighting foam. That case is scheduled to go to trial June 5th before the South Carolina federal court judge presiding over the multi-district litigation. It's expected to last five to six weeks, and we expect a verdict by late July. The plaintiff is the city of Stewart, which alleges contamination from a fire rescue training facility and seeks $105 million. We've said this case could settle, but if it doesn't, we expect causation will be relatively easy to show, and the issues will center more on what the correct measure of damages are. We expect more bellwether trials in 2H. Um, including the selection of personal injury cases for trial. And so there's been big news this morning, and there was, there was big news yesterday. There was a $100 million settlement announced related to City of Rome's lawsuit against 3M, DuPont, and others. And DuPont and Comores announced a $1.2 billion settlement with water authorities this morning. Um, they announced it. We said that, you know, we don't think that's the final tally because there likely will be holdouts and there are significant lawsuits remaining, particularly in North Carolina. We haven't changed our estimate for 3M based on this reported deal. We said 3M could pay 30 to 40 billion total for PFAS lawsuits. In litigation against Bayer over weed killer Roundup, Bayer faces a crucial hearing before the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals on June 13th. Bayer still faces about 40,000 lawsuits over claims the weed killer causes cancer. Bayer has argued failure to warn claims are barred or preempted by federal law. In 2022, Bayer lost its petition to the U.S. Supreme Court to review a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling finding claims were not preempted, but Bayer has been pursuing another appeal over similar issues in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. The original 11th Circuit Appeals Panel before which Bayer argued this rejected Bayer's argument in July 2022, but Bayer filed a petition for the full panel to hear its appeal, what's called a petition for on-bank review, and that was granted. And what's remarkable about that is those reviews are rarely granted and require a majority of judges on the panel to vote in favor of granting it. Oral argument before the full panel is to be held June 13th. That was the important hearing we spoke about earlier. And we think based on buyers securing a full panel to review its case, it has enough votes to win the appeal. And if it wins at the 11th Circuit, that creates a circuit split with the 9th Circuit. A circuit split would make it likelier that the Supreme Court reviews buyers' case if it petitions the Supreme Court for again for review. And in the meantime, buyer has also um, also has another appeal pending in the 3rd Circuit Court of Appeals. With that, I'll turn it back to you, Elliot. Great. Thanks, Holly. All right. 
Jen Ree, let's bring you in to talk antitrust. Never a dull moment in antitrust uh, in the antitrust world these days. It seems like you know every day there's like major headlines that you have to uh, react to. Um, but you wrote that you think the FTC will begin antitrust review of the Pfizer Cgen deal, um, you know, in mid June. Um, and then you're also going to be watching a hearing where Apple is trying to block class certification and litigation by customers complaining about Apple's App Store. So come in and tell us about both those cases. Sure. Thanks, Elliot. Right. So starting with the Pfizer Seigen deal, um, we absolutely expect the FTC to start an in-depth investigation of this acquisition. Um, the companies had agreed to the deal in March for $43 billion, and they filed it with the FTC on May 12th. And that May 12th date triggered a 30-day um, sort of pre-look by the FTC. And after the 30 days expire, so sometime in mid-June, they'll launch what are called uh, issue what are called second requests, which launches the investigation. And what this really means is that the timeline for the deal gets extended by at least eight months and probably in this case a little bit longer than that. And news often of an in-depth investigation uh, when it becomes public has a tendency to negatively impact the stock of the seller Seijin here, but it may not in this case because I think it's pretty widely expected that the FTC is going to take a hard look. Uh, I mean, even if it does, it, it usually bounces back because it is anticipated that a review is going to be opened up. Now, the thing here on the ultimate outcome is, you know, it's really uncertain. We have an FTC today that's highly sensitive to any kind of consolidation at all in the pharma and biotech spaces. So in an effort to try to curb and slow that consolidation, they're taking novel approaches to these deals and adopting brand new theories of harm. So it's very difficult to anticipate what they're going to do. Because this Pfizer-Seigen deal, from an antitrust perspective, in my view, looks quite clean. If you consider how these deals historically have been analyzed, which is looking at sort of drug by drug competitive overlaps between the companies. Now, the two had one potential competitive overlap, but that has been eliminated because it was a Pfizer drug that it shared with Merck and it ceded all the rights to that drug to Merck. So kind of eliminated that one overlap um, and you would expect this to get clearance. But we saw that the FTC just challenged a different deal, Amgen's potential acquisition of Horizon, both biotech companies, um, to try to stop that deal. And in that case, the companies also didn't have any competitive overlap. So the same thing could happen with Pfizer and Seigen. But again, it's, it's, it's eight months or more down the road from now. Um, now, turning to a whole different matter, Apple and its App Store. Um, Apple and Google as well, but I'm focusing today on an Apple case. It's been under threat for years now um, by antitrust legal challenges that come from various plaintiffs and plaintiffs groups. And so far, Apple has mostly been successful in warding off outcomes that would significantly dent the revenues it obtains through its app store, through the sales of apps and in-app purchases. The particular suit I'm talking about today is a consumer action in which a group of consumers are trying to get class status right now, and they're seeking about 10 billion or at least up to 10 billion in damages for what they say are alleged overpayments on apps and in-app purchases that the developers passed on the big fee Apple charges developers to the consumers. Now, 10 billion is a lot, but we think Apple could probably settle for under 500 million, even if the consumers actually win class status, because after that, they have a lot of hurdles down the road to actually prove their claims, to prove liability under federal antitrust laws, given past rulings by the same judge in basically identical cases that were ahead of this one and brought by different plaintiffs. 
So the hearing on class status is in June. We expect a decision in the second half. Um, and I should note that these consumers were already denied their efforts to certify a class in the first quarter of 2022. But the judge is letting them try again. And we think they probably cured the deficiencies that killed them the first time and that they'll be able to move forward. If they don't get class status, the case will probably just fall apart. If they get class status, which is more likely, we think the cases will probably settle in 2024. So with that, back to you, Elliot. Great. Thanks a lot, Jen. All right, Nathan, let's bring you in to talk financials policy. Um, banker bonuses in particular, it's always a topic that garners a lot of interest from Bloomberg Terminal clients for reasons that I think are obvious. Um, and it sounds like U.S. regulators are signaling that they'll be proposing a rule to restrict banker bonuses. So maybe come in and, and tell us, uh, you know, your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, if there's one way to uh, get great readership on the Bloomberg Terminal, it's to have a headline with bankers, bonuses, and restrictions. And so what I want to do is tell a story of why this is actually coming about. So if you go back to Dodd-Frank, you know, signed into law July 2010, there was a provision in there that says that the six U.S. regulators, so this is the Federal Reserve, the SEC, the National Credit Union, uh, FHFA, uh, OCC, and the FDIC have to come together and create a proposal restricting banker bonuses. And they, the Dodd-Frank Act required that this thing would have to be put in place by July 21st, 2011. So this was one year. Well, the first draft of the proposal came out in April of 2011. Uh, and then the regulators sit on it and they sat on it for five years. The second draft of the proposal came out in 2016. And again, they sat on it. And here we are in 2023 and we have no proposal. Now, the regulators had always wanted to, at least the Democratic or the Obama era regulators and the Biden era regulators had always wanted to go back and try and get this completed. And the reason why they hadn't is you have six regulatory agencies. It's not easy to write a 500, 600 page rule uh, and get this over the finish line. However, uh, now we have recent bank failures of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank and First Republic. And that has given political cover to these agencies to go forth and talk about trying to dust this rule off. Now, the 2016 rule, and I should note that uh, the, the what we anticipate coming out later this year is another proposal it's not a finalized but it may use the 2016 proposal as a base what it would do is for banks that are above 50 billion in assets uh it would defer amounts over a certain time and a certain percentage so if you're a named executive for one of the big banks your deferral amount is essentially 60 percent of your bonus is going to be deferred for four years uh, and then there is this another long-term bonus requirement that's 60% over two years. Now, if you're a significant risk taker, and the way that it works there is if you were a trader who had the ability to, to trade or expose more than 0.5% of a bank's capital, or you received a third of the total compensation from incentives, then your deferral amount was 50% over four or two years, depending on how the bonus structure is. Now, that's what we're working off of right now. The reason why we think this is going to come out in later this year is that the FDIC chairman and the vice chair from the Federal Reserve, this is Martin Gruenberg and Michael Barr, had both said that because of these recent regulatory bank failures, we should dust this off as a way to combat bad behavior. Uh, Martin Gruenberg actually said earlier this week that he anticipates this proposal coming out in 4Q. Now, there's two things with that. One, 
you need six agencies to sign off. Like I said before, it's not easy to do that because it's easy to do this in principle, but each agency has its own jurisdiction, its own authority, its own clients. You know, when I say clients, I mean the, the areas that they oversee. Um, and so you know, it, it's not going to be easy for them to do that. Secondly, by putting out a proposal, let's just say in November or December of this year, it is going to be extremely difficult to get this done before the 2024 presidential election. You know, the quickest I've ever seen a proposal go from proposal to finalization is about nine months. And generally, they don't propose things and finalize things within like the two months prior to the election. So um, if they were to do this, certainly would be up for review by Congress if Republicans win the White House, the presidency, uh, the House and the Senate via the Congressional Review Act. So this is more likely, in my opinion, a proposal that's coming out with the idea that would get finalized if Biden wins a second term. Now, the last thing I want to say about the proposal is obviously, you know, this is something that the bankers aren't going to like, but it is something that non-bank financials like hedge funds are going to like because this doesn't apply to them. So if you're a banker and you're sitting in Wall Street at the moment and the bank comes to you and says, right, 50% of your bonus is now going to be deferred four years. If you take the train up to Connecticut and you go to a hedge fund, that doesn't exist. So one of the aspects of this is that we do think that these large banks are going to have to pay more for talent. And they're also going to have to try and stave off talent fleeing for non-banks that aren't impacted by that rule. But again, we'll find out more later this year if and when this proposal comes out. And Elliot, I'll turn it back to you. Great. Thanks, Nathan. That's super interesting. Um, okay. Uh, last, um, and I guess not least, I will um, talk about President Biden's student loan cancellation plan, which I expect the Supreme Court will strike down sometime this month. Uh, just as a quick reminder, back in August, the administration announced a plan to forgive about $500 billion in student loans held by the federal government. Multiple lawsuits soon followed. Um, most of those lawsuits were dismissed, but a couple of them succeeded and wound up making their way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where oral arguments were held uh, this past February. Uh, one of the lawsuits uh, in the Supreme Court was brought by six GOP-led states, including Missouri, and the second lawsuit was brought by a pair of uh, individual borrowers. On the merits of the case, I think all six conservative justices will say that the Biden administration exceeded its statutory authority. Um, you know, the, the statute that was invoked um, to propose this plan uh, is called the HEROES Act. It was passed shortly after 9-11. Um, and the language of that statute refers to loan waivers and loan modifications during a national emergency, but it doesn't expressly provide for cancellation or forgiveness. So I think based on that language, the conservative justices will invoke the major questions doctrine to conclude that Congress didn't give the administration power to cancel or forgive student debt under this statute. And then on top of that, the statute contemplates relief for borrowers whose position was worsened by a national emergency. But the Biden plan really isn't tailored to such borrowers. Instead, it basically provides blanket relief without borrowers having to show that the COVID pandemic exacerbated their situation. So I think that's another reason the conservative justices will find that the Biden administration exceeded its statutory authority. Um, but the more interesting issue 
in, in this case really has to do with standing and whether the plaintiffs in these cases were sufficiently injured to bring their case. Um, and I think this issue is actually a much closer call, um, but at the end of the day, I don't think it will save the Biden administration's plan. Um, more specifically, I think the court will find that the state of Missouri is a proper plaintiff. Um, and that's because, you know, Missouri contends that its state student loan servicer, which is called MoHELA, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, um, would lose about $44 million in annual revenue under the, under the Biden administration's plan uh, because MoHELA services loans that are held by the U.S. government and that would be eligible for forgiveness. Um, but, you know, interestingly enough, Mohila itself did not sue. And and that's sort of where the legal issue arises, because the law generally frowns on third party claims. But I think in this case, the conservative justices will give the state of Missouri the benefit of the doubt because the state created Mohila. The state controls Mohila in many ways. And I think the court will find that Mohila is considered part of the state of Missouri. So assuming I'm right and the Supreme Court winds up striking down the plan, um, one of the biggest beneficiaries will be student loan servicer Nelnet, since it's one of the few student loan servicers that still services federally held loans. Other servicers like Navient and Sally May and Discover primarily service privately held loans, so they really wouldn't be harmed by the Biden administration's forgiveness plan. And then just lastly, in, in terms of timing, um, you know, it, it's really impossible to say exactly which day the Supreme Court will rule, um, but we do expect it in June. The, the Supreme Court usually wraps up its decisions by the end of June before breaking for the summer, and, you know, I don't see any reason that that's going to change this year. So, you know, stay tuned. Um, we should get that decision sometime this month. Um, and with that, I think we will wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. As always, thank you for listening. And as a reminder, you can find all of our research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. And we encourage you to reach out to us with any questions that you may have. Uh, and we also encourage you to listen to other episodes of Votes and Verdicts on whatever platform you like to get your favorite podcasts. So with that, thank you for listening and have a great day. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.